Hey guys, as always, the Side Character Podcasts are not experts. These are just our own personal opinions and experiences. Now on to the show. Hello and welcome to the Side Characters Podcast, a podcast where we talk about diversity and nerd culture. I'm Jordan. And I'm Leah. And today we have a guest. Ooh, ah, ooh. Oh my, my, <laughs> my friend Alex is here to talk with uh, us about today's topic. Um, uh, say hello, Alex. Hi, everyone. <laughs> yeah, today's topic is why genocide is okay. Today's topic of why genocide is okay. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. Sorry, Leo led in with like a joke and I just wanted to like, I want to let you know, Alex, it's time to just listen up. We're going to be okay. Everything's fine. I first started with the genocide joke. It's okay. Fine. It all goes downhill from here. Don't worry. Um, Yeah. But yeah, Alex is here today to talk with us. And but let's start with a little bit of like, tell us about yourself, Alex, leave those types of questions out of the way. Okay, well, it's difficult to know where to start. But given the content of your podcast, I suppose I will start with the fact that I am a researcher, I'm an art historian, and I want my area of focus is fantasy art. Um, specifically from the late Victorian period. Um, And I'm really interested in the way that we um, can identify visual works as fantasy and the relationship of mid-19th century art cultures like the Pre-Raphaelites to the work of mid-20th century literature um, written by uh, Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. Guys, guys, I, th- I think we got an expert. I think I think we nabbed one, Jordan. We have yes, an we, expert. We, I do lead the show off by saying, hey, we are not experts, but look at this. We have one. We have <laughs> I feel like that's very generous. But... <laughs> um, yeah. So you, well, say, well, so you say like visual arts. Is, um, what do you think about anime? <laughs> that's a good question. So I am not. Uh, overly familiar with anime. However, speaking to Leah recently, I did realize that Sailor Moon is anime, and I grew up on apparently the sanitized version, but I still loved it when I was a kid. And I'm now um, getting into Cowboy Bebop. Um, I just watched the first episode of the anime, having already started the live action um, and I, I actually surprised myself because I, I don't, I, I'm going to offend someone, I'm sure, but mm-hmm. I'm not a huge lover of animated, um, moving animation, even though I love graphic novels, but I per- 100% preferred the animated Cowboy Bebop to live action, the live action version, which I actually also really enjoyed. But that's <laughs> There's a very the good other. reason for that. And that's because the live action is bad. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I hear. Apparently, it's already the second. It's yeah, canceled. yeah. It already got canceled. Which honestly, like as much as I hate on it, I'm kind of sad to see it have gotten canceled. So, but I, I'm a sadist. Not sadist. A masochist when it comes to um, the stuff I watch. So, um, is there anything else that you want to say about yourself or let us know? Like that's important, not important. Who knows? 
a fun fact. Ooh. We could do it like summer ca- camp where we's like, oh yeah, it's like tell your name and like something fun about yourself. But I mean, yeah, anyways. Or what about two truths and a lie? Two truths. Um, <laughs> I well, one thing that is kind of interesting about me that you probably wouldn't pick up. Um, from listening to me or potentially even by seeing me is that I'm Anglo-American. So I think I sound pretty British, but I do consider myself incredibly British. <laughs> I, it's funny. I mention it because I just had this conversation with someone before I came on, <laughs> but I do consider myself to be an American. And I think I've been really influenced by American culture. And my mom, <laughs> Jordan, <laughs> like my, my mind is blown because I just assume and that's what happens. When you but assume. I, Jordan, I have to tell you, I'm going to embarrass Alex by saying that this is the person who says Jumanji instead of of, or Jumanji. She says Jumanji. I was was going to say it is Jumanji. Yeah, she says Jumanji. (laughs) So, yeah. I feel like actually this could be a really good opportunity for me to be vindicated by your audience. So I have always said Jumanji and I can't hear a difference between how I say it and how Leo says it. And I I feel horrified at myself, but also I just want someone in the world to just tell me that I'm not wrong. Not right. If you are that one person who exists, please email us at sidecharacterspod at gmail.com. Thank you. Yeah. And we'll pass it along to Alex just so that she can be vindicated. I need that. Um, but yeah, otherwise, so yeah, I grew up on a diet of Star Trek and um, Star Wars from my mother, okay. um, who is American. Um, and then there, there are a whole bunch of other things um, that I uh, enjoy. Yeah. Okay. So yes, you, you are a nerd and the only thing that, not the only thing that makes you a nerd is speaking Elvish. It's interesting that how that works. Sorry, I said that since it's very wrong. But anyways, so welcome on the show. I'm glad to have you. Leah has constantly been talking about how great you are, and I'm yeah. glad to hear. And also, you are the DM for one of Leah's campaigns that she is yeah. doing. Yeah, we're both we're both a little we're both a little D and D obsessed. Yeah, so there uh, are dragons in these dungeons, huh? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. Mm-hmm. Dungeons and Dragons, sorry, is just is one of my my sort of favorite nerdy things. But I don't know if you want me to talk a little bit about my nerdiness yes, now. Please. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah we'll yeah. get into it. Um, free reign. Um, another thing that I know um, you guys like to do on your show is for people to talk a little bit about their labels, which I'm happy to do. Um, so people can kind of get a picture of me. I'm white, as I say, I'm Anglo-American, though I sound very British. I've grown up for the most part here. I'm cisgendered and I'm heterosexual. Um, so that's sort of my, those are my labels that I identify by. Um, I don't consider myself to be a nerd, but the more and more that I listen to you guys and the more I realize that I am one, and as I think I've said to you both before, um, people have identified me as a nerd and a geek yes. before and um never in a pejorative sense yeah. uh i'm always very happy um and proud to be uh, thought of in that way um yeah i think probably because of the my research area 
but also I do play Dungeons and Dragons. In fact, yesterday was Christmas jumper day at work and someone was wearing a D&D Christmas jumper. Oh, it can't be. <laughs> well, it definitely helps you to make friends. Yes. <laughs> Great. Um, but yeah, I uh, love uh, Tolkien and high fantasy. I have been recently um, drawn into the fairy smut uh genre shall we say currently reading zodiac academy and i am obsessed <laughs> in, case, in case everybody needs to know it's glenn it's glenn who who led the fairies who has discussed fairy smut before on our podcast she got she took another one down she oh. raised her sniper and and yeah. Hit the yeah, I, I do not know if you heard the audible like sigh that i had there but, no um, no <laughs> Interesting is all I will say about that. I'm glad that you found something you enjoy. Oh my goodness, honestly. Jordan's, Jordan's uncomfortableness. I, I'm great. not. I, it's just that it's not my style of thing that I would ever ever think of reading. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I, I like things that don't involve fairy dicks. <laughs> I, I <yeah>. can't associate. <laughs> Um, um, is there anything else? I'm sure there is, but hopefully it'll come out later on because I went on. The list is long. Yeah, but hey, you started Cowboy Bebop, and that's what I care about, not the. That's what Jordan really cares about. That's that's the one thing I heard. Everything else, like just the one thing I heard was, oh yeah, yeah. The things I like in nerd culture are Cowboy Bebop was cool. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, Jordan, at, she, next on her list is to read Full Metal, Full Metal Alchemist. So, yeah, buddy. Yeah. Look, I'll try yeah, to find which... if there's a high fantasy anime that's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> the first three pages of Full Metal, and I really enjoyed them. <laughs> first three pages? First three pages are on the train, right? Yeah, I think so. like ten words between those pages. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Well, welcome to Bongo. It's, <laughs> it's them getting to the. It's them entering um, the city that yeah. that town. Yeah, yeah with the, with the radio. Yeah, and the radio. Yeah, yeah all that stuff. Yeah. Okay, we gotta get into this. So, we know too much. Anyway, Leah, what are we doing today? What are we doing today? Well, let me tell you, it's not a surprise because we've talked about it on previous episodes that this was coming. I forced Jordan to read A Wizard of Earthsea um, so that we could have this talk today about this classic piece of fantasy literature and its amazing author, Ursula Le Guin. And so everybody can experience her and this We'll definitely have spoilers for the book, so don't watch this episode if you care about that. Um, but yeah, that's what we're that's what we're doing yes. today. Please, if you care about like being spoiled on something that's been out for what sixty years now, 60 seventy years, years yeah. now, yeah, yeah. Like if if you care about spoilers on something that's seventy years old, yes, please. Um, you know, avoid the spoiler sections of this episode if you don't. Keep listening, but um, I do want to say about the um forcing of jordan to read of this book is one it's like we've talked about this a lot before it's like i i'm not like huge into high fantasy and i apologize for everybody who's going to come after me for saying that because i have started fights by saying that before and then second 
it takes me, and as Leon knows, a very long time to read a book. Like, I have had people joke that, oh, yeah, you don't read. I do read, and I love reading. It just takes me an extremely long time to actually sit down with said book to read. And yeah. so I did it, guys. Be proud you of did me. It. Well, I, did read, it. Now I, I read a book that's like 200 pages. Yeah, it's not a long book. It's not, not, not and it did take me multiple months to get to it. <laughs> and I, I, I don't know if I should say the context around the last couple hundred pages of you reading it. What do you mean? What was the so, context of the last? Oh, the fact that it was like the day before we were originally supposed to record. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I did chug a hundred pages in one day because I'm like, oh, crap. We got it. It's like, Lee's like, are you going to be able to finish? It's like, when I say I'm going to do something. I am going to do something. I'm going to do it. I am a man who is constantly and always true to my word. And I finished the book the, 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 oh, day, the day, the morning we were supposed to record last time. So, yeah. And so it's, it's, so it's pretty fresh in our minds. So I guess you guys could lead off in talking about who is yeah. Ursula K. Le Guin. Because Ursula. as we'll get to later i hadn't i did don't really know anything about her i didn't really know what ursi was and when william mentioned oh yeah it's this like classic book i'm like okay so yeah, yeah. please let, let's inform the listeners who is ursula okay. K. Lequin. yeah i'm just gonna give a little bit this is gonna be like equivalent of like our definition section which is basically me reading off her accomplishments <laughs> <laughs> epic. so um she is known as a major voice in American letters, which is like, sounds pretty much as like a title to me as like, it's, you know, that Pulitzer phrase that people use that you don't usually associate with sci-fi and fantasy, but I love it. But she said that she liked to be called an American novelist. And I say that if Tolkien is the father of fantasy, then Ursula Le Guin is the queen of speculative fiction. Like, that's what she did. That's who she was. Um, and a little bit more about her. Ursula Krober Le Guin, and I give you the Krober because her dad is a very famous anthropologist um, who I actually knew who he was before I knew who she was. Um, <laughs> was Lived from 1929 to 2018. Oh celebrated God. author whose body of work include 23 novels. 12 volumes of short stories, 11 volumes of poetry, 13 children's books, five essay collections, and four works of translation. <laughs> Take a break after that sentence. And then the breadth and imagination of her work it earned her six Nubella Awards, seven Hugo Awards, and S SFWA's Grand Master, along with, yes, are you sure it's not pronounced Nebula Awards? Whatever. I We know continue. I can't pronounce things. Continue. Thank you. I'm sorry, but that uh, just struck me as weird. Anyways, I know. I, I, anyways, this week has been really bad for me pronouncing things. You got things. this. You can do a, this. I had a presentation and I fucked something up and I just said sorry and kept going. <laughs> sorry. That's good. That's yeah, yeah, that, I was going to say, yeah. yeah, you mess up and you keep going. So anyways, messing up and yeah. keep going. At, at F S F. W.A. Grandmaster, along with the pen, Melamood, Melamood, thank you, and many other awards, and that's all just taken directly from her website, and like, so yeah, prolific as fuck. <laughs> Some might say she's a I genius. <laughs> Some might say she's fucking amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Like, 23 yeah, so, novels. 
Jeez, okay. Exactly. Yeah. Crazy. Crazy. And a major voice in American letters. That's epic. But yeah, so that's a vague, like, who she is in generalized terms. But like, I don't know, maybe we could talk about what we know about her prior to doing this. Let's start with the person who knows the least. Okay, so me. Um, what I knew about her prior to this, <laughs> I knew that she was a woman who existed in history and wrote Act. fantasy books. Check. I assumed that last part because you handed me a fantasy book. And also, I think she did more than fantasy, right? Like more sci-fi yeah, she too? she actually... Yeah, she it was more. Did it was more sci-fi because I think if I remember in the afterwards, like this was like one of her first fantasies, right? Mm-hmm. It okay. was. See, yeah. I know things. I know things. Okay, that's like the three yeah. things I know. I get a cookie. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'll go next because I have the second least. Is that I, I, she was one of those authors that you like grow up. He, like I've heard about her, never, heard and like her. knew that she was like prolific in sci-fi. And, like, vaguely knew about Ursie and had been like, oh, I should read this because, you know, I I read Tolkien, but I, like, oh, I should read this, too. But I also, like, could never find the time or the energy to until recently when I was like, this needs to be rectified. And so thus I picked up this book and I'm, like, going to read the rest of them. Um, But, yeah, I do know I do know more vague things about her. I know about her series. She has the sci-fi series that's, like, genderless. That's all I know. Um, yeah, that's yeah. That, that's my experience. Also limited, but slightly more than Jordan. <laughs> oh, wow, it's a competition now. Interesting. Okay, whatever. I'm fine with it. <laughs> and who's going to win? Yeah, so, so, yes, please tell us your experience and tell us what you know about Ursula K. Le Guin because... I knew literally nothing. <laughs> well, I actually, you know, listening to you guys speak, I think you kind of got the key points, and I'm not sure <laughs> what more I can add. But I will tell you my experience of her, um, because I think I was trying to think when I first encountered her, and it's got to have been when I was quite young. Um, I know that my grandmother is a great lover of Ursula Le Guin. And in fact, when I finished my doctorate, which my grandmother proofread for me, she got me a collection of her essays. And so um, Ursula Le Guin has a very sort of personal connection to me. She was also an academic. Um, She did her master's at Columbia and then went on to do her PhD. Um, She got, I believe, a Fulbright scholarship to France but she did abandon the doctorate before she finished. Um, but I think, you know, reading her books, you sense her, um, the breadth of her knowledge and also as an author, her compassion and um, sort of empathy for others. And uh, I think that is those two things are what makes her work so um, excellent because as a speculative fiction, an author of speculative fiction, her ability to create worlds that are totally immersive, believable, um, detailed and rich, both in terms of their characterization, but also um, the world building is almost unparalleled, actually. Um, And Leah, you mentioned that you would call her the queen of speculative fiction. And Jordan, you mentioned that 
you knew she was a fantasy author and uh, and a science fiction author. And I do think that her work really successfully articulates some of the difficulties that scholars of the fantastic have in discerning the differences between fantasy and science fiction, because I think that we all intuitively have an idea of what those differences are. A lot of people would say fantasy creates worlds that are largely characterized by settings in the past, and science fiction largely creates um, worlds that are set in the future. But actually, that's not true. Um, and I think Neil Gaiman, who's, who loved Ursula Le Guin, is a re- his work is a really good example of work that blends um, sort of fantastical elements with um, modern and or future settings. Uh, so speculative fiction, I think, is a really good way, the, the term speculative fiction is a really good way of addressing what kind of literature Le Guin was creating and um, the the really unstable boundary that exists between fantasy and science fiction. And yeah, love it. Yeah, that was awesome. That was fucking awesome. Like I said, well, we, we have an expert. That was just like I a better mic drop than I think Jordan and I have ever gotten on author. Like that's like just like crazy. Well, I mean, I, uh, this, uh, yeah, <laughs> I feel very shy now. <laughs> no, you're doing great. It's awesome. Um, yeah. God. Leah's also all struck, I fe- apparently. <laughs> I know. Well, also the fact is, is that I'm like, oh, I didn't say what speculative fiction is, but I feel like your answer also like defines speculative fiction for everyone. So we don't need to say that what it is. But yeah, that's yes. awesome. I, yeah. I mean, this is a really interesting debate, and it would be interesting to know what you guys think about what you what you think fantasy is and science fiction tangentially, because this is really what my research is about. And um, I am always interested to know what people think fantasy is, because everybody has a different answer that largely is a reflection of everybody else's answers. It's really fascinating. Yeah. Okay, Leah, you go yeah. first. What is fantasy? Oh. Oh, God. Okay, we're doing this now. Um, I don't know. I feel like I view fantasy as a much broader than what most people view it as, which is like that, like, it's got to have that medieval setting with the supernatural in it. Um, Or like, uh, like, yeah, but I don't think fantasy has to have that. What I do know is that I I know what I don't like from sci-fi and why I don't read a lot of sci-fi. And it's like, I don't really like space exploration doesn't really interest me um like colonization doesn't really interest me the sci-fi always seems to have those themes of like interactions between aliens and humans and i'm like great i I like that in a tv show like battlestar galactica don't like to read it all the time which is generally i feel like we we get all the time so yeah, I feel like for me, sci-fi is way more easy to define than fantasy is to define, and fantasy is everything else. Everything supernatural and fantastic goes into fantasy. Okay. Can I try? So I think that like kind of the very, very last thing that Leah said is kind of how I view um, fantasy is something to do with the supernatural as if like um, types of magic or types of spirits that do not um exist in the natural world i'm talking like fairies i'm talking the the supernatural concepts that would not exist in our natural world and it's just exploring how that interacts with 
everything else around it. And sci-fi, I would say, is more of like a science base. So we get the things that are more, um, I guess, scientific and more based in the physical world. So like space exploration, um, you always get like technology as part of it, um, different sorts, any in, anything that has to do with like the physical things that man could or eventually create on their own rather so that's kind of like my idea of sci-fi versus like fantasy that. fantasy I that was it. good i like his answer <sighs> okay. with his answer dictionary definition yeah well i mean i i that's really fascinating to me because i think both um both the sort of things that you have identified both identified as belonging to fantasy absolutely do um but you know again you didn't give the same answer and so it's just fascinating to me uh, to ponder the nature of fantasy and I think it is difficult to define precisely because it basically can subsume any kind of um, cultural corpus or like set of motifs themes experiences into it because of its nature it is just sort of all-consuming and it can be anything um, I yeah. actually makes me think it's not a question that we should dive into now because otherwise <laughs> we'll go on for hours. It's, it's the idea, do superheroes count as fantasy or what do they count as? What genre do superheroes fall under or do they just become their own genre? And Well, we don't have to go into it, but I do think that it's a little bit of both, if not its own genre, but it's... It also yeah. depends on the superhero and depends on the type of like where they get their powers, I would say, where it lies into that whole idea. But anyways, yeah, I, I this is I, interesting topic that I could literally talk about all day, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. maybe an episode for now, next time. <clears throat> I mean, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah have a lot of opinions on this matter but again I mean I think this is again you know going back to what we're talking about in essence is that could be an, included under the speculative fiction bracket mm -hmm. as well or the spec speculative art bracket um, like horror as well could be included within speculative um, art and literature but yes, yes. superhero question is fascinating to me yeah for um, so Leah do you, do you want to keep going with the notes Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, why should be, I think we've kind of covered it a bit, but, like, why do you think that we should be talking about Le Guin? Because I know Jordan didn't really know who she was. I had to have this vague understanding. But just thinking about the fact that Jordan didn't know and other people I know don't know who she is, I'm using you as that I know a lot of people who don't know who she is. Why don't we talk about her in the same way we talk about Tolkien? And maybe should we be? That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> there are a number of different ways to answer it. And I think in the sort of last bit of your question is, yes, she is as important um, um, as Tolkien, in my opinion, in the sort of fantasy canons. But any kind of canon, you know, I think it is, uh, canons are useful, but uh, I also think that they are arbitrary and they, they shouldn't, we shouldn't, place any kind of value system on them because actually there are a whole bunch of fantasy fiction authors, fantasy artists who um, haven't made, been necessarily as impactful as Tolkien and Le Guin, but are nevertheless um, significant. 
significant in their own way. But yeah, Le Guin's impact has been huge. And, um, uh, you know, she is a phenomenal or was a phenomenal writer and author. I mean, she's one, she hasn't, she's more recent than Tolkien. So she's been around a lot less and there's been less um, sort of secondary production uh, work on her than there has been on Tolkien. Um, I think Tolkien perhaps was something novel and Ursula Le Guin was a 20th, uh, later 20th century author and writing at a time when there was an explosion of interest in fantasy um, around the time that Ballantine Books, who were an American publishing house, created their first series of fantasy works. And um, it was Ballantine Books and the Newcastle Forgotten Library, I think, they were published around the same time, late 60s, early 70s, who really started to sort of um, identify what fantasy was to a reading public and create the idea of fantasy that we have today. So so Le Guin's sort of writing alongside that, and um, I'm sure in 100 years' time, she will be as important as Tolkien was. Yeah. Yeah, God, this is so interesting. The fact you can pull those facts out is just so fucking interesting to me. I don't know about Jordan, but I'm like the nerd, like the academic in me is going, like, oh my God, this is so much fun. <laughs> just hearing all this shit is so much fun. I just keep going back to the intro. It's like, oh God, we have an actual expert. Like this We have is an like expert and it's amazing. <laughs> stuff that is <laughs> actually stunning. Yeah, he's my PhD. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like actually like part of your like knowledge base rather than like something that like oh yeah, I just read once on an article. No, like this is actually pretty amazing. So, yeah. um, is there anything I else, think... Leah, you want to add to this? Because again, well, I, I was can't. just I was just saying, yeah, the like why like why we should attract people to her now. I wish more people talked about her is because she's done cool stuff. That's like. Like we've talked previously, I think on another episode where we were talking about the issues with sci-fi today and how they characterize race. I think it's, we've talked about in the past. And one of the things is that they tend to show race, like they tend to fall under like only a couple different ways of characterizing race and gender. And Ursula Gwen is one of the few examples, which is sad because she was writing this like 40 years ago. And she's one of the still one of the primary examples and only ones that we can pull out of someone doing something characterizing race and gender differently. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we should talk about that more. Like she, her, that those types of things fit in now in today's society with like the young, what younger people are doing and everybody's writing about and this diversification of literature and stuff that's happening now. And it's like, that's who we should be holding up as our standard because she was doing the the like being like sci-fi can be whatever it's it's the idea of it's the limit of human frontier and so it means it can be anything so absolutely well and something you said reminded me another reason perhaps that Ursula Le Guin is not as famous as say Tolkien is that there has been no significant adaptation of mm. her works and we'll talk, I think, a little bit later about the Earthsea adaptations. But I mean, she, as we, you said earlier, she wrote 23 novels and countless works, other works of literature, most of which have not been touched by, um, you know, Hollywood or big sort of blockbuster things. And I'm sure that they will be in the future because they're so rich in terms of content and, 
you know, exciting. Um, and yeah. Um, yeah, no, um, a book was written and I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm like, it's <laughs> like, like there's the term, the layman. And I like, I am the most layman person that you will have on this for this episode because. Hey, hey like, as long as you're enjoying it. I know. That, I, that's I, a, I, that's I, a cue for our audience too. No, so no, it's this fine. Is a good topic. So shall we um, talk a little bit about the actual book, um, A Wizard of Earthsea? And do yeah. like a quick summary. Um, I wasn't planning to do this because it is kind of me, but Leah, could you give me like a three sentence summary of this book before what? I do like an actual summary? Oh, oh God. I basically told everyone before this that I have discovered this past year I'm horrible at summarizing <laughs> anything. Um, okay. So this is The Wizard of Mercy, is a coming of age story. Good. About Check. a young. A young boy who becomes a wizard Check. goes through all his training, makes a stupid mistake, runs away from it, Correct. ends up making some other shenanigans, and then realizes he has to confront that mistake. Yeah, and defeats it. Yeah, I think by that's, confronting it. That's a very good summary. So I'm gonna just really quick read the um back of the book because i mean it sums it up and then i'll just do a quick summing up on my own but ged was the greatest sorcerer in all of ursi but he was once called sparrowhawk a reckless youth hungry for power and knowledge who tampered with long-held secrets and loosed a terrible shadow upon the world this is a tale of his testing how he mastered the mighty words of power tamed an ancient dragon and crossed death's threshold to restore the balance and so, like Leah said, is a coming-of-age story about this um, character named Ged, who I think is kind of like the most relatable and most realistic writing of a kid who finds out he can use power because immediately he's like, well, I want more. I want to do like the cool magic stuff that everybody else does. And that leads to him getting a little bit too cocky with his power and realizing that he needs to be, I guess, a little, he thinks of himself as a little bit better than really a kid who's just first starting off knowledge. So he starts by, um, you know, he's taken under the wing of a yeah. great wizard named Ogion, who's like kind of like, you know, slow and soft spoken. It's like, yeah, you need to learn all these concepts first. He's like, no, I don't want to do that. And he starts like by, you know, messing with magic. He shouldn't have been. But then Ogion sends him to like a magic school to learn. And then he meets a rival who um, kind of pushes Ged to his limit. And Ged ends up making a huge mistake. And then the rest of the book is dealing with how he deals with that mistake first by running away with it and then by the very end learning that you have to confront that that side of you that side of you who is um gonna go and be brash and make mistakes and it's all about growing up and becoming a man and i i think it is a very good telling a very real realistic telling of a character who has to learn who he is yeah. yeah. Also, all all written in 1968. Yeah, yeah. This type of story, written in 1968, and it's a very relatable, very, like, yeah, it's even to this day, which, and it was something that I, I really enjoyed reading. Which, keep that date in your mind with what we tell you later on about why we're like, <laughs> oh, yeah, why? Maybe, like, why is it, why are they talking about a coming-of-age story? You'll find out 
if you haven't read it, and then you'll be like, 19 fucking 68? Jesus Christ. Yeah, we don't even get to that like big reveal part in our notes until like a little bit later, which I again it was something where I read it and I and even me sitting there reading the book, even knowing like what Leah had said about the book, didn't catch it until like halfway through the book. I'm like, oh crap, what? (laughs) Yeah. But so I guess what are your thoughts of the books, guys? The book and um, what did you enjoy? What didn't you like? Let's let's talk about the book. Um, whoever wants to start, start. Well, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) I think why you guys asked me to come on this episode. I mean, uh, again, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but um, another a book that's set in the Earthsea world. uh, I would actually say that's not a Wizard of Earthsea. I would actually call my favorite book, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later. But yeah, I mean, you know, as you know. A kind of light touch overview of my my view of the book is it's just magical. It's so transporting. And Jordan, as you say, it is just so um, relatable. Yeah, you know, there's so much about Ged's experience that we can all associate with. And that feeling of biting off a bit more than you can chew is something yeah. I think that we all um, experience at least once in our lives. And um, yeah, it's just transporting. Yeah. I, so I will say there were some things about it I didn't like, (laughs) which it's probably more a product of the age I'm reading it at and the time I'm reading it at, which is the fact that it's a very old narration style. It's not like from a character's point of view and it's not omnipresent. It's not entirely omnipresent. They don't often give you, she doesn't often give you all of Ged's thoughts which was very strange because most of the books I read these days are from a character's perspective or you have their entire views on everything and you don't have Ged's like internal monologue like ever. And it makes it slightly disorientating and took a longer time for me to get into it. But I will say that by the time I got to like the second half of the book, I read the like last hundred plus pages in a second like it was so fast hey same here was, yeah yeah very similar experiences of, of not but being forced though um of being like i just wanted to know what happened next i wanted to know how he was going to get himself how he was going to deal with we might as well say it like there was he conjured a giant he conjured a smoke monster that was chasing him and this like dark presence that was following him like legit following him and you're like what the fuck is he going to do because he's clearly not strong enough to handle this and then you're like it's turned around at the end it's great it's great Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. drives it along in addition to all the other themes that we'll talk about which when i finished it and went fuck yeah (laughs) okay so we'll get we'll get into a little bit but i do want to talk about um so did i enjoy the book what did I enjoy about the book? What didn't I like? So I will say first starting off, like again, not the biggest into high fantasy, not the biggest into fantasy. What I've been reading mostly for the last while has been a lot of um, horror and like more of slice of life or realistic horror stuff. Um, so so I start reading it and like I feel bad saying it's like it's to me it's a little boring and a little bit typical but the reason it is typical to me is because it 
was written in the 68. So all the stuff that like is typical about it is original. It's just that all these authors in the like recent We're authors, so used to it. yeah, have written this stuff before. So it's something that I'm used to. It has become typical. But and so I had to kind of like push out of my oh, this is typical. Like, it's not though because this this is original. The typical things like the like school of magic and the rival like oh, Dr- Draco Malfoy esque rival type thing <laughs> yeah. was something that came name, from like, her Jasper? yeah yeah that <laughs> came from her not from um whatever her name is um but like so so like those typical things like but it was things that I did like and I actually truly ended up like after we get out of the magic school and we get like what the rest of the book is going to be about that's when it truly put its hooks in me and I, I truly liked it. And there, there was things that I enjoy that are very different about the book. One being the way that magic is done. It's about knowing like the true name for these things and knowing about how to like, you know, the, knowing about the nature of these things and yeah. being able to understand it on this level. And that was a very, very interesting way and a very interesting way that really I haven't truly seen elsewhere in like fantasy and magic. And I liked just how she developed like because i've also talked i love coming of age stories like it's yeah. one of my favorite genres of story and so like seeing it's like oh yeah this kid who's like he starts off like i'm good at everything because i'm naturally child talented at magic and then he fucks up bad and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and almost dies because of his own cockiness when it comes to magic and it was like something seeing him develops like oh yeah i effed up and not just being like okay i effed up i'm never gonna do magic again and like developing it further and further and like being faced with hey we can give you this thing that will help you conquer the thing that you're looking for him be like no because he understands it's more to it than that and i love that part of it and he wasn't just an anti-hero that's the thing that i've seen a lot of times nowadays is either they're the perfect hero yes or they're a fucking anti-hero like brooding edgelord and there's no in between and it's like he's an he is an imperfect hero in the ways that like all of us are imperfect heroes well i I think the way that i would like to put it and the way that like makes sense to me the most is he's human yeah he is a very human very relatable character because like you talk about the power fantasy of magic and most people will be like, Oh yeah, I will use magic. I want to gain all this power. I like do these spells. And that's exactly how he was at the very beginning. He's like, he finds he can use magic and he instantly wants more. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. I just love the way that his character developed throughout the book. Cause we lead off the book. It's like, here is this story of this. Um, he's basically like, this is the coming up of Gandalf pretty much like here's how this great wizard in the um world came up and he didn't start as like the old wise wizard who can summon the world no he starts out as a bratty little kid yeah <laughs> I love it also you reminded me with two things two things which Alex can probably confirm this first bit which is that the that magic system feels to me very influenced by um indigenous North American peoples like abs like the fact that things have power and like places have power and names is feels very much like an influence from indigenous culture um to me alex if you can confirm or deny that (laughs) did you feel that as well yeah no and i'm almost certain i mean i don't want to i won't speak too extensively about this because i'm my knowledge of native american culture is so so poor 
Um, but I'm almost certain I remember reading that Ursula Le Guin had intentionally created a, a system in which Native American culture sort of um, it, it was a huge influence. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, that sort of um, closeness, proximity to nature is a really important theme, I think, in the work. Yeah. The other thing I was going to say is I forgot how much I lo- Oddly for me, the person I identified most with was Vetch, yeah. his best friend, which probably because I'm like, I am like, I, I tend to view myself as like the mother hen type person Absolutely. in many of my friendships. Yeah, I tend to try and like be an empathetic person, a caring person. I don't know. It feels weird to say this, but I feel like most of my friends see me this way. And, and that was like him. I was like... He was, yeah, he was great. And yeah. I like, every time he was there, I was like, yeah, he's great. I, I really liked him as a character and how he like, was still like, like both, though how he was characterized with Jasper, because he was like friends with both of them. Yeah. And he was like, I'm friends with both of you, but I need you, like, I need to like mediate between this and then like supporting him and being like, I'm coming with you and but I still have to go back. Like, you know, that's, a, you know, that's all these things of him being just like dependable, a dependable friend was really great. I, yeah. As a character, I really liked it. Yeah. Yeah. No. yeah. yeah well, I, I have a couple of thoughts. One of the things you were talking about, a flawed main character. Um, I mean, one character that I feel like, does actually sort of reflect again in that way is Frodo. And um, Frodo ultimately fails in his quest. And he um, is quite abusive towards Sam at one point. And Sam, as you were speaking about Vetch, perhaps fulfills some of the same sort of aspects and elements. I actually think Sam's the real hero of the Lord of the Rings. Everybody everybody will agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's, it's, I, oh, what, okay, we don't want to get onto this for now. <laughs> but I will just say the return of the king, you know, we could think of the return of the king as Sam's return to his home. Um, and that's just how a nice way to think about the Lord of the Rings. Anyway, <laughs> so yeah. Previewing the fact that we will at some point get both Glenn and Alex in a room together to record a Lord of the Rings episode with us. Keep Lord going, Alex. Um, another thing I was thinking, I mean, so naming things, I just really quickly want, I, I mean, names are really important to sort of speculative fiction, and especially speculative fictions of the past, like myth and legend. Um, and, uh, for example, the sagas, um, the sort of uh, Norse sagas, naming an object or knowing the name of a thing or a person often can give you power over that person or thing. Um, I've just read a pretty, okay, on reflection, pretty awful book called Tithe by Holly Black. Um, <laughs> this has been an ongoing thing that Leah and I have been yeah. debating. And I, I will accept that it's not good. But in it, the main fairy um, gives his name to the changeling girl, which gives her power over him. Oh, so yeah, that's the entire thing in fairy culture. Yeah, uh, yeah, in fairy. And fairy, again, is a whole other sort of genre. But then the other thing that I wanted to say is, as you both were speaking, I, I actually remembered there's this uh, William Morris book, The Wood Beyond the World. 
um, that is a sort of ocean quest, and it's a prose romance. And it's fascinating to hear that you both found some the text somewhat inaccessible, because I, I actually do get that, and I, I don't think you're wrong. And a lot of people say that of Lord of the Rings as well. Um, but William Morris was considered to be the sort of father of fantasy, and I've only just now considered that there might be a connection between Le Guin and Morris, mm-hmm. and I don't know a lot about that, but that could be a really interesting route for exploration because, I mean, she is so novel in some ways, but yeah. you know, she's also coming out of a quite already established genre, so yeah, yeah. very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. God, that just made me think of one of I've I've saved a couple plot hooks on my phone and Instagram, my favorite one, which now most of my people, most of my crew listen to this and are going to know this one. But it's still my favorite, which is that you show up in the Fey Wilds and someone with a clipboard and a pen says, takes your name is like names and takes your names. And then suddenly you can't remember your name because it's a Fey Wild and you gave someone your name in the Fey Wilds. And so you have the whole thing is that you have to go and find your names again. Which I, I was like, that is one of my favorite books I've ever heard. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Jordan. Oh, hi. Um, anyways. No, I was just waiting. <laughs> I had nothing to add. I literally have nothing to add. <laughs> like I said before we started recording, it's like, this is a very Jordan Blight episode. I have opinions, but not many. Um, so I guess I think we kind of already hit upon it a little bit, but what makes Earthsea different from other books you have read, if anything? Well, do we want to go um, to the big I, reveal right now? Or? Yeah. Do you want to do the big reveal? I can do the big well, reveal. I, well, I kind of want to just talk about my own experience with it. So, so yeah, the big reveal, and I'll just straight up and say it right now. The big reveal for me was that, um, most if not all characters except for like two groups of characters are um people of color or dark skin or written to be black and um so they very early on in the like first chapter describe like the attacking like village as being like pale skin and they don't necessarily describe um well she doesn't necessarily describe um ged's village at really at all you don't really have like a skin color and that was like something that and she does it very subtly throughout and but there are other characters like Ogion, his first master and there are people at the original school that are described as being dark skin so when i'm reading this i am reading this as like okay i know that leah told me this is a very diverse like cast in this book and it's like a book that does a great for diversity especially with people of color and i'm reading it's like well Gets not black because like it's never described early on. Gets not black, so it's like, is this just another kind of white savior story? And I was like, it's like, okay, this is something I'm gonna bring up on the show. It's like that, like yes, the diversity is great, but this is like a white savior story until about middle of the book where it is revealed that Ged is um, dark skin. I was like, wait a second, oh. Is black. <laughs> it's and like... here, Jordan sent me a message, maybe like I don't know how far you were in, saying that you did not, you were not enjoying the book. Yeah, yeah, that, that was like, that was like the in book. the first like quarter of the book. Yeah, like that that was like at the magic school before like the big um, event happens with the smoke monster, and it was just yeah. like yeah, this is boring. <laughs> yeah, so that change your perception of the book do you think the reveal that um ged is um darker skinned yeah and i mean so so 
like some people are going to look like, oh, why would that change your sex book? Because to me, I've grown up being a black man reading either white savior stories or predominantly white cast stories my entire life. And it, I already had parts where I related to Ged, but it helped me relate so much more to Ged having a black character. Well, dark skinned black, or you can, however you want to say it, but having a black character like that. And it stopped being your typical white savior or white story and started being its own thing. Once I got out of the eyes of seeing it as a white character, white story. And I, I, I don't know if I explained that well, but yeah. No. Yeah. Cause I had, I had a similar yet different experience. Um, I went in and when the whole thing, when she about to uh, a little close to halfway around the book says, gets red, dark, red, red toned skin. I went, Oh fuck. <laughs> I assumed he was white. Same here. And was like shame on me. I and it made me and this like and I know that's not what she's intending to like I have a thing here we can we can read that in a bit but like as me today being like check like it was a total like check myself moment that I went in assuming that this guy like looked like me and he doesn't and I, duh, should have realized that when everyone else when is everyone dark else skin, is everyone else is described as dark skin, and except I'm like, for the woman in like her mother, and also and the, the invading force, yeah, the invading or like the only white like, characters, yeah, the like described like barbarian esque characters who live east of the people are all white. It's like all the negative forces in the book are white. Um, but, but I guess we've been conditioned, though, to see that immediately, unless yeah. we're told, and at least this is how I read, and that's how I'm conditioned. Unless you're told, you are conditioned to see the characters as being white. You're conditioned to see the characters as being the everyman face, which is, in our society, white. And yeah. she very subtly does all of her character descriptions. And I think that is something that was very, very done very well and mind-blowing to me because you don't get that the characters are not white at all until she says it. But she, like, it's usually one one or two lines. Like, like you said, oh, yeah, his dark red skin. That's the only thing that's really said about it. Or, oh, yeah, like, Vetch's, like, very, very dark complexion or some, something like, like, she's said something about Vetch as, like, being very dark. And it's just, like, you mm -hmm. don't see that, because, like, when I was reading through, before I got to, like, the one line for East, like, skin guard description, I did it now. And, it's yeah, also, it's, a, it's a conditioning. Also not, <laughs> it's also not as described. You know how today they often be, like, chocolate brown skin, and they use those descriptive terms rather than just using color? Yeah. Uh, I actually appreciate the fact that she didn't do that, which I was like, I'm, I'm kind of tired of chocolatey brown skin. <laughs> and it... Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Skin brown like the color of wheat. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think you guys have kind of hit the nail on the head um, with that, that reveal. It's just so sort of spectacular in a way. 
but I mean, her her literature is so interested in exploring race and sort of undermining our preconceptions because within, of course, within Earthsea, race isn't like it is in our real world. That's not how it works. As you say, it's actually the barbarian cultures in um, Earthsea who are white um, and tend towards being more violent, um, which we generally think to be a bad thing. <laughs> but yeah. I think we'll get on with that, get onto that in a second. Um, but yeah, uh, I mean, it is. Uh, this is what makes fantasy a superior genre, in my opinion. <laughs> Absolutely. It, this just draws um, our attention or can draw our attention so precisely to the foolishness of racism and our own sort of um, ideological or cultural perspectives. Um, yeah. Yeah. So really quick, I do want to say it's like um, something that you just said was like it, race does not work how it does in our world. And I think that's, mm -hmm something that um should be like a key in fantasy is like that the race and how these characters interact shouldn't be how they are in our world because it's not our world they're not our yeah. worlds but i know a lot of fantasy writers and a lot of people lean on portraying race on how it is around and like that's how we get a lot of these white savior stories and stuff like that where it really in the long run doesn't matter like mm -hmm. in a lot of fantasy because yeah. we're like the race does, shouldn't or doesn't have to interact in the same way and i really liked the way that it was shown in the book because like race wasn't something that was talked about ever like yeah, yeah the characters were white black whatever but it wasn't like polarizing as it is in our society and i, I thought that was interesting that race was kind of on the back burner yes get is black and that is important to me as a black man but in the story as it it's not an important fact get being black no. isn't an important fact as part of the story you don't have every time like and i've noticed in stories where like you have a black character walk in and like people look at the black character weird or like it's an important thing that this character is black but get is just a person in this story that exists yeah it doesn't it doesn't she doesn't take otherness like that's not a thing that's not a, like yeah. and i love that yeah. that's the th because we as people in the west have all these things stem out of like our our inability to view like we just view people as other than us and it's like for her that doesn't matter i don't matter what matters like there's political differences there's other types of differences why do we need to be doing race as a as a basis for like otherness is not what becomes important in this story that is not the important at any point which is like great because also this is a children's book so shouldn't we not be reinforcing the same otherness that we get from other parts of our lives so excellent just yeah yeah it's really interesting because i'm just thinking about women and how women are portrayed in the book and that's a really important theme I think for me but it absolutely is a reflection of our own reality and so it's really interesting thinking of the uh, the more ideas surrounding race in the book 
and the themes and ideas surrounding womanhood, because actually I do think there's a quite um, poignant reflection on what it means to be a woman in Tahanu, which I'm going to leave till the end of the podcast. So everybody has to keep listening. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but, and, and so absolutely, I mean, her reflections on race are, are directly, directly come out of her experiences. But I mean, that means it, it is surely deliberate that she's writing in this way about race. Um, yeah. And I find that quite exciting, really. Yeah, I think this is perfect time then to read from her afterwards because we kind of have like flipped it around. But I, so I read her after, she has this nice afterwards after the book and fucking made me love this woman. This woman is amazing. If you haven't seen how she rips into people online before she died, amazing. But yeah, I'm going to read a small section because this is like one of the two, race is one of the like two themes we've identified as big in this book. And this is what she says on it. And she says, in a sense that a wizard was, was perfectly conventional. A hero does what a man is supposed to do. He uses his strength, his wits and courage to rise from a humble beginnings to great fame and power in a world where women are secondary a man's world. In other ways, my story doesn't follow tradition. Its subversive elements attracted little attention, no doubt because I was deliberately sneaky with about them. Yes. A great many of the white readers in 1967 were not ready to accept a brown-skinned heroes, um, but they weren't expecting one. I didn't make an issue of it, and you have to be well... At, you have to be well into the book before you realize that Ged, like most of the characters, isn't white. Yeah, his people, um, the archipelago Gians are various shades of copper and brown shading into black in the south in the east reaches and she goes on to talk about that and she's she says i was bucking racist tradition making a statement but i made it quietly and it almost went on notice yeah amazing yeah and i mean like like i said i got through mo more than half of the book before even i was like wait a second hold, hold on it's like she, she was sneaky about it and i mean Calling sneaky is one thing, but I think it was just very well done in order to show you the one fact is that it doesn't matter. doesn't matter. Because we talk about that all the time. It doesn't matter. It's important, but it like it's not what makes the character. You already see who the character is, and then you find out that he's black. And it's like, oh, did it matter that he was black? No, he's still Ged. It didn't matter. It's great that he's black because we have the diversity, but like, it's, there's no difference between him if he was white or black. He's just a character, and it's great, and I love it because it's showing that we're all just fucking people. Wow. It's saying <laughs> it's saying suck it to those people who today are like, well, I couldn't identify if a character doesn't look yeah. like me. Yes, yeah. you can. She yeah. just did it showed you. Eat it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Suck it. Suck it. Suck it. Sorry. Alex sounding all all expert and us going, suck it. It's like, yeah, yeah, like, here's these very like well distinct um points that I'm going to say. Suck it. That's all I feel inside. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But maybe we'll go on to the second. If Alex, do you have anything else? Otherwise, we can go on to the second topic, which I think is important in this book, which is the nonviolence. Man, 
Now, we told you, we gave you a summary, and we're like, he makes this mistake, he has to deal with it. You expect it to be a hero's thing where he pulls out his wand and he fires fireballs and other shit at them. Absolutely not what happens. The entire thing was resolved by him basically confronting this smoke monster, which is revealed to be part of himself, and naming it and then absorbing it. It's entirely nonviolent. Mm-hmm. And that was intentional. So I have another thing from the afterwards. I'm going to start with that this time and we can talk about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Start with that and then we can kind of talk rather than... You got yeah, this, Leah. So, I'm you. Yeah, so she basically starts by talking about like how it's like, again, like there's traditional and she has like, it goes away from tradition and the fact that there's heroes and like adventure fantasies and they traditionally put the righteous hero in a war against unrighteous enemies and he usually wins. And so she talks about that, but she says, but that there are no wars in Earthsea, no soldiers, no armies, no battles, none of the militarism that comes from the Arthurian saga and other sources. And that by now under the influence of fantasy war games has become almost obligatory. I didn't. And I don't think this way my mind doesn't work in terms of war my imagination refuses to limit all the elements that make up an adventure story and make it exciting danger risk challenge courage to battlefields a hero whose heroism consists of killing people is uninteresting to me and i detest the hormonal war orgies of our visual media the mechanical slaughter of endless platoons of black clad yellow tooth red eyed demons woo <laughs> Uh, I do yeah. also like how she writes her afterward just as well as she writes the rest of the book. Like it's very, oh, yeah. very stylized, very well written and well said. So good. It made me love the book even more. <laughs> I mean, her nonfiction work is so interesting as well because it's so diverse in theme and um, uh, actually approach as well. Because throughout her life, people, I think, talk about her her writing in three stages and and she does really change her mind as she goes on which is actually a good thing we should all be co- constantly confronting how yeah. we think how we feel um so yeah it's quite fascinating um yeah so i have two things if i may just dive oh, in yeah. violence Absolutely. front so the first thing i was thinking um was i do think that fantasy tends to be preoccupied with war and weaponry mm-hmm. and um i think there are a lot of reasons for that, but I'll stick with what I know, which is the, the Lord of the Rings thing. I mean, the Lord of the Rings can be argued to be a war novel, yeah. which is because I think Tolkien grew up during a time of war and was yeah. heavily influenced by it. But it's actually the themes of pacifism within the Lord of the Rings are a really important part of the book. And I'm not going to go into this now because I could go on and on and on. But the fact that Bilbo's... Um, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Bilbo stayed his hand when he when he found the ring. Oh, with Gollum, yeah, that whole thing with Gollum is that he could have he could have pushed him or something. He could have hurt him, but yeah. he was compassionate. Yeah, and as a result, the ring was destroyed and would not have been destroyed had Bilbo not shown mercy towards Gollum. There are a whole other range of things. But yeah, so I think though The Lord of the Rings is a war book, um, pacifism and um, uh, benevolence are really important features of it. 
But as we know, The Lord of the Rings was a really important blueprint for fantasy generally. So it's followed in that vein. It also, the medievalism, I think probably uh, the inherent medievalism of fantasy probably has um, something to do with the interest in weaponry, etc. Um, but yeah, that's probably a reason for why fantasy can be quite preoccupied with war violence and with weapons. There are probably other reasons as well. Um, but I actually think there is a little bit of violence in this book. And it might be because of where I am in my life right now. But I think there is the, that violence of the self as, as well, violence towards mm, himself. Yeah. And actually, you, there is a way in which you can read. Obviously, there is Ged overreaching himself and his own sort of vanity and ambition being his detriment and downfall. But there are also interesting ways that you could interpret um, the book as a, an allegory. You, well, I mean, everybody knows it's a coming-of-age story. And when you go through that coming-of-age process, you are constantly confronted by um, factors that are outside of your control in sort of mental health terms. Mm -hmm. And I know that you guys like to talk about mental health. Yes, absolutely. This is an interesting kind of um, discussion for the people that listen. But um, I, um, I certainly feel that, especially the final scenes in which Ged has to kind of confront his, his, um, the shadow, the darkness within him, etc., and subsume it back into himself. There, there is something about that that kind of um, resonates with me in terms of confronting those parts of ourselves yeah. that we have treated yeah. and um, allowed to grow into shadows or darkness. And so, absolutely, it's nonviolent in a sort of physical sense. But there are um, sort of cycles of violence within the novel. What yeah. do you guys think about that? Well, I don't know I, if it resonates with you at all. I think as well, it's it's sometimes more for me, I view that almost more it's less violence and more pain. Mm. That like thinking about him not being able to save his friend's daughter um, in the fishing village with his magic and stuff like that and that type of thing. It's just like... I almost view that, and I like I completely agree that it, it's violence in a way, but it's almost like it's more internalized pain in self-inflicted pain rather than divorced violence against others. How mm -hmm. I would differentiate that, but it's also like you're completely right that that's still violence against yourself, mm -hmm. and that pain of thought and how that happens and occurs. Mm. Yeah, Jordan. Oh no, I just. A listening and B, um, to kind of agree with Leah on it, but like I, I think that the violence within the violence that does kind of happen does lead to a point of character growth where it's not like Leah said, not violence, not too much violence against another. In the then like Ged can be seen as being a pretty non-violent character, like his first act in protecting his village against invaders was instead of summoning down a giant lightning bolt to kill his enemies it was to create a fog so that he could so that they could escape or that they could gain the upper hand and push back yeah um mm. and the thing that i kind of called out in the notes was what i what i really liked was the um dragon scene is 
that like one of the greatest feats in a lot of fantasy writings and a lot of fantasy works, video games, um, D and D, and it's one of the greatest feats is killing a dragon. It's always shown as being like this big thing, this big trophy. You are shown as being strong if you are able to kill a dragon. You are shown as being all the top, like. One of the like in D and D, like one of the happiest moments is when we fought and killed a dragon. It was a very hard and long fight, but we did it. And that's that's something a big part of fantasy is killing a dragon. And yeah. the big thing that I mean, yes, some dragons were harmed in the making of this book, but the big <laughs> confrontation between Ged and the dragon that was plaguing this um, town, this area, was a conversation that happened. It wasn't a fight. It wasn't Ged like having to cut off the dragon's head and then screaming with victory because of the. the a, no, it was a conversation that happened. It was a battle of wits. Yeah, it was a bat. It was a literal battle of wits. And, yeah, and that, that and I and I like that portrayal of it rather than like yeah we could have had this long descriptive thing of him fighting this hard battle but finally able to slay a dragon but we got a conversation it's like hey i know your true name and you need to leave type of thing and rather than this and i and i, I like the portrayal of the like kind of showing that these all of these situations can be handled if you take the time to think about it because one person would grab a sword and raise a sword against invaders or grab a sword and raise a sword against dragons and then the final conversation in the book against the shadow monster could have been something where you like raised up against it but rather the theme of like learning to find a way to accept and deal with this thing as part of yourself that happens so i i don't know i think i rambled way too long but yeah um i i just like i just like that the way that it like they're there's violence in the book, but it does show by the character's actions that there are non-violent ways to approach it and shows that yeah. rather than perpetuating the violence, we can reach an understanding each time. So. so this made me think of something random today that I saw, which was this thing that Alec Baldwin dealing with the whole rust shooting thing. And the reason <sighs> I'm bringing this up is that he came up He's written like a letter and it's, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but it's very powerful. And I, what I pictured it went through my head was people, because you know, there are people, particularly in the US who are very supportive of guns, who are like, well, you suck it up because like you, because like, it's not the gun's fault, like whatever, like, whatever. The fact that he's like, he has said that like, he doesn't, if this destroys his career, he's okay with that mm-hmm. because it's someone else's life. And just the fact that you know that there are probably people who would like rag on him for doing that. And that's kind of like that idea that he's viewing life as being incredibly important that it, and that it's like racked his soul. And the fact that hurting someone has destroyed part of his soul. And mm-hmm. I think that that's kind of like, I don't know, relating to this of the idea that that we see that that violence that Alex said that's against ourselves as being just as painful and just as like hard as the and adding that like humanity back in to that 
versus some fantasy violence that often you don't see what probably 90% of the characters have PTSD because they've killed so many fucking people like that they they view that as being like that's the that it, they can just wash it off but you probably can't and like yeah like I I've read books where they're like yeah, you can always see this like pure evils um, in the eyes of a professional killer, and that's what often these fantasy people end up being is professional killers. They go and kill creatures, and uh, yeah. So yeah, I well, something you said made me think this is actually quite an important point. Is the I think you said washing it off. Well, get gets scarred when he releases mm. the shadow mm-hmm. and that um that i i mean it fits in with the ursula Le Guin's sort of um non-violence thing and that is the disastrous consequences of his actions are yeah. uh, this very visible scar on his face that he has to um carry for the rest of his life yep that and the death of another person because someone died in yeah, the, dealing um, with his mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. And someone lost their like connection with power and stuff like that. Like, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of like, bad stuff comes from um, trying to yeah. control things that you cannot necessarily control. Yeah. Yeah. Basically don't use magic ever. You'll be yeah. better off. Um, hey, the Harry or not the Harry Potter, the uh, the Discworld wizards tell you that all the time. They're like the whole so point of them doing Harry magic Potter is, to is not specifically magic. about always using magic no, no, as no, much no. as you humanly can. No, the wizards at the universe unseen university in Discworld, their goal is to not to to not do as much magic as possible because you shouldn't do magic uh, because it it can cause disastrous effects. So they don't do power magic. Oddly, uh, we got a power on. We still got like a half an hour's <laughs> worth of material here. We got oh a power God. on. Gotcha episode coming soon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. Leo will be too happy about that. I would love that. Um, so, Alex, since you have, and I'm just going to read this thing that Leah wrote. I yeah. apologize. Yeah. Since you have read the rest of the series, can you give some details about the other books? Do they follow the same style? Does LeGuin continue the same themes? And would you? Would you recommend the other books? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'll give. Shall I give a brief overview? Would that be useful? Yeah. Sure. Um, cool. So there are. Um, there's the Earthsea trilogy was written um, roughly as a kind of standalone threesome. The uh, Wizard of Earthsea was published in 1968. The Tombs of Atuan, the second book, was published in 1971, and the Farthest Shore was published in 1972. In 1990, she published a fourth book, Tahanu, and that those four books are now considered to be the sort of Earthsea quartet. However, she did in 2001 release two uh, sort of shorter books, I believe, um, t- Tales of Earth, Tales from Earthsea, and the other Wind. Um, but I, I definitely think of the first four books as being the sort of series. Um, the first book, as we've spoken about already, deals with Ged's coming of age. The second book follows Ged to uh, sort of the furthest reaches of Earthsea, where um, the coming of age story of a this time girl character called Tanar is um, explored. And then the third book um, is 
follows Ged as an older man. Um, the fourth book follows Tenar as an older woman. And so there is some really interesting sort of echoing going on. Um, Tahanu, the fourth book, is the book that is 100% my favorite book of all time. And I say that because I read it at a time when it really resounded with and affected me. And um, I actually, I think Ursula Le Guin did write something about great literature changes you in which... And we love we love books like that on this podcast and like works of media on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I didn't find that quote, but I did find this quote. She wrote, we read books to find out who we are, what other people, real or imaginary, do and think and feel is an essential guide to our understanding of what we ourselves are and may become. And this is what Tahanu did for me. There's a, a moment in it when she is speaking about what it means to be a woman and I'm also going to read that very quickly um she is speaking to Ged and bearing in mind that they're now an old man and an old woman they are very much elderly and um Ged says to her if women had power what would men be but women who can't bear children and what would women be but men who can and Tenor says, ha, went Tenor. And presently, with some cunning, she said, haven't there been queens? Weren't they women of power? They go on, they have a little back and forth. And Tenor says, why are men afraid of women? If your strength is only the other's weakness, you live in fear, Ged said. Yes, but women seem to fear their own strength, to be afraid of themselves. Are they ever taught to trust themselves? Ged asked. And as he spoke, Teru came in on her work again. His eyes and Tenar's met. No, she said, trust is not what we're taught. And this is the passage that, above all other works of literature, just sort of changed something within me. And suddenly I understood something about my experience as a woman. Um, and you know, we were earlier. We were talking about how um, Le Guin's treatment of race is quite imaginative, and obviously is a political reflection on the state of um, race relations in our own world. But um, I actually, and with women and men, she does the same thing. But this is the truest thing that I think anyone has ever written about womanhood for me, yeah. from my perspective. Yeah. So. I recommend it yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that no, sounds great makes, wow it just makes me way more like yes i need to read the rest yeah. of them i will probably do it at christmas this is kind you, of determined should, that this will be my thing at christmas I, i'll get around to i already stated how i'm slow to read not a slow reader i'm just slow to read um but i'll get around to it. it sounds great but leah you got this i got this and i will it. come back and report on my thoughts yeah. because yeah I love that. I love that. That's great. That's pretty awesome. God, yeah. Okay. God, she's such a good writer. Like, ah. Oh. Yeah. It is interesting. I mean, there are some people who don't like Ursula Le Guin for, for a variety of reasons. And so I won't go into it now, but definitely, you know, it's not all sunshine and roses. And no. as I said, she has often gone back on herself and changed her mind about things and 
express different opinions. She's very, she's very, um, what I like about her, she's very assertive. She really believes mm. what she's saying. But then she changes her mind, which is okay. That's a positive thing. And I think on the whole, she probably was a pretty good person and tried to be so oh yeah well and that's we'll get like when we get to the adaptations that's part of the reason with the adaptations is that um but i i will say that i like the fact that she when she talks philosophical and when she talks political it's so easy to understand like it's so easy to interpret what she's saying um unlike many people yeah, yeah. Um, so I think it might be time to get to the adaptations. Um, yes. The influence of Earthsea. There are two adaptations of Earthsea. I think we all tried one of them, but Leah, did you try to watch the Ghibli one? No, I just haven't had time. Yeah, I haven't had time. I also have it not was... had time, but there is a Ghibli, um, Studio Ghibli, uh, what's it called? Yeah. Earthsea movie. Tale, Tales of Ursi, and basically I did read some like reviews of it and stuff like that and Wikipedia on it and basically Le Guin was like, it's not my book, but it's a good movie, which <laughs> I feel like is very much like what Ghibli does for most things that they adapt. Like that's the same thing with Howl's very Moving Castle. Very much so, yes. Like, <laughs> I love Howl's Moving Castle primarily because I watched the movie first and then read the book and was like, oh, these are not the same at all but they're both great um so yeah i think that's that's pretty much what that is nice slightly whitewashed but not as not uh predominantly i think they had darker skinned characters and stuff like that yeah which brings us to the (laughs) ursi miniseries in 2004 on the sci-fi channel so first before we even start i just what to say sci-fi makes horrible stuff period yeah. um <laughs> this is this is none different but i guess i just want to go into my I'll, I'll speak for leah as well my and leah's experience yeah. with this is we so it was the weekend where cowboy bebop came out it was the night before christmas it was the weekend where cowboy bebop came out and everybody was yeah. stirring including the mice um so we watched an episode or two of Cali View. I'm like, since we're like watching a bunch of stuff today, you want to like at least try yeah, to watch try the same it. thing. At least try. And so yep. first we couldn't find it anywhere. Then we finally found it and we yep. started watching. We got about, Leah says 10 minutes and I don't even think we got 10 minutes I, in. I agree with seven. I agree seven, with seven. seven. Yeah, we, we started watching it and already within those first five, it was so off of for where the so, books were and it was so americanized so no not 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 but so so current, 2004 yeah so 2004 current media wise like where it has to be like this really bad like sci-fi like the cg was really too like you could tell exactly what second it, of what year it was made based off of what it yeah. looked like. And then, well, like, we start well, with, like, the first scene you see Ged, who is played by the whitest fuck, Sean Ashmore. <laughs> um, he's making out with this woman at the first start, and they're, like, half frolicking and all this stuff. And it's just like, didn't the story start when Ged was, like, 12? Wasn't he yeah. a child? And it yeah. starts out that, and we see, like, a man's butt starting off. Like, it's like, what is happening in this, like, thing and so there is second scene there was a woman taking her top off that was there are two 
two people of color and the entire cast of white folk. And Ooh. two people of color, and one of them's Ogion, and I don't know what the other one was, but still, it's like, come on. Come, come on. Just like, really. Egregious. It, it, it was egregiously white. <laughs> I'm 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 sad that we did not know about this for our whitewashing episode because this may be the most awful. This may win the award for the worst whitewashing in a fantasy in like in a fantasy or sci-fi they, they form of media. It, though. it went from there being two white characters in the whole story of Wizard of Earthsea to now being two black characters, oh, sorry, two people of color in the whole story. So it's, it's just like, hey, we're just gonna flip it around and make it different. You know, new and also, different. I just have to add the poor Donald or Danny Glover. Just poor say, Danny I'll, Glover. You roped poor Danny Glover into this shit. (laughs) You can just see, like, like I haven't watched the parts with the minute, but like in all the stills that I saw, all the pictures, like you can just see how upset he is. (laughs) That he's just like, what the fuck am I doing here? (laughs) Uh, And so everybody knows she was cut out of the Ursula Le Guin was cut out of the entire creative process and disowned the work vehemently multiple times. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Principally because of the whitewashing, actually. She she said, you know, I say Ged is red-brown. He is not white. <laughs> what are you doing? It's just bizarre. Honestly, the whole thing. I had a very, as I was telling you guys um, before, I had a very similar experience. I turned it on for five minutes. And actually, in the notes, I was shocked that it was made in 2004 because... It really evoked, um, I don't know if you guys ever watched Willow, um, the fantasy film with Warwick Davis, which apparently was made in 1988. So that's the vibe <laughs> is giving off. And I'm like, it is baffling to me. It's so weird. God. It's, it's so bad. It's, it's so bad. It lo- the thing is, like, not only with all the other issues of whitewashing, etc., it just looks bad. It looks like it looks a sci-fi, like, television special, which it was, but it looks like it. It yeah. looks like it. Like, because you know how sci-fi has that specific feel on every single movie where it's, like, slightly, like, off and slightly corny on everything they make? Yeah, it it's looks like It's kind of like... You know how you know how the Doctor Who like well they're flying through space thing is that vibe of sci-fi? That was the intro scene with like that level of like you're like this is super fake and you're like flying over. I can't even remember. I feel like there was fire at one point and it was just it was just so bad. I think I blocked it from my memory already. Yeah, yeah, it's like, hey, it's just going to go behind the vault. We're just going to keep that yep. there where all the childhood trauma lives. Yep. <laughs> it's, like, it's, basic, it's basically that. It's trauma. It just made me laugh, though, that Alex said beforehand. I wish that I wish that we could have kept that little <laughs> clip of us talking to put in here. Because literally, she was like, yeah, I tried. I watched five minutes and we were like, oh, my God. <laughs> we also tried to like like the thing is i really do not think it is possible for me in the age i am now to sit down and watch that trash yeah it, but yeah. It, it looks like like honestly go look at a sci-fi show now it still looks it feels the same 
it still yeah. looks like something you would have on the TV as you're um, vacuuming your carpet. Like it still looks like and feels that way. Yeah, it, it, they're all all of sci-fi's fantasy things are the same. There's a yeah. like, come at me, sci-fi. You know I'm telling the truth. Dude, we need someone to come at us. That'll get us more views. Yes, yes, please attack me as much. (laughs) Here, I'll say a bunch of stuff that you don't like. But um, so with the adaptations, I'm going to move to the next section. Is what do you want to see Earthsea or possibly others of Le Guin's work adapted today? And do you think it would do well? You guys could talk, and I'll give my (laughs) soul-crushing defeatist view on these things. Um, should I go first? Because sure. I feel like I'm going to be the uh, sort of um, naively positive voice here. And that is, uh, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to see. I, I mean, I went into watching the miniseries thinking, oh, fantastic. I love Earth. We can't wait. Great. It defeated me or I, or I defeated it, whichever way you want to think about it. Um, but I, you know, I think that adaptations are endlessly fascinating, and that's all, probably a whole other conversation that we could have. Yeah. Um, you know, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, phenomenal. I'm really enjoying Wheel of Time, and it's wonderful to see books that you've enjoyed come to life and to revisit them again. Because most of us don't reread books. I reread, I think, two books, um, but. You know, it's just wonderful to dive back into a, a fantasy universe that you really, really loved before yeah. again. So, yeah, I would I would love to see Earthsea adapted. Um, and there are loads of her other books that I would like to see adapted as well. Oh, yeah. All right. I got to say, I'm also in that camp. Now, let's say I've got the two. I've got two things currently going in my mind. One, we had Cowboy Bebop. But just before Cowboy Bebop was fucking Dune. Which, talking, I had a conversation with my dad who actually went to go see it. And my dad's pretty picky. Like, we know this. My dad does not watch a lot of TV or anything. And he agreed with what I said. Which was that it falls into the exact same camp of the Lord of the Rings movies. Where they might be better. Like, now this is, some people agree this. They might be better than the books in some ways for many people. Because many people can't read those books. And that it's just like an excellent adapt. Dune was an excellent adaptation, and it falls into those camps. And I got out of that, and that was around the time I'd read this, and I was like, "Why haven't someone done this right now?" With the fact that all of Hollywood is like maybe in both in the bad ways of like forced forced diversity, but also in the ways that like people want to see this. Yeah, and you have a book like Ursi that's primarily non-white casting telling interesting shit like I and I know that I have friends who like um their favorite is the um the the tomb of Atween is that what it is yeah yeah and that's their favorite and like I I just want to see this happen because either as a series of movies or a television show because I feel like now's the perfect time. Like 10 years ago, no, not the right time. It wouldn't have been the right time. Now, yes. Yes, it is. It's the right time right now. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it's time for me to speak. It's time for Jordan to be sad. Okay, so um, let me talk about a couple of things first. Um, Aragon, Inkheart, <laughs> Ghost of the Shell, 
Cowboy oh. Bebop, the last season of yeah. Game of Thrones, um, the millions and millions of other stories that have been adapted, that have been turned into these things that we all look at and go, <laughs> But the thing is, I, 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 I so there is the grand hesitation to me now for almost everything that has been adapted been into a movie. Like, like there is that grand hesitation because I will say a good 70% of the time, it always ends up horrible. We get things like Dune, but remember, Dune came after the first Dune film made by David Lynch, which Dune can also be on that list of movies based on books adaptations that fell so hard and were so bad. So, look, if it gets an (laughs) adaptation and it turns out great, sure. Is this like, oh yeah, do I think it should? It'd be cool. It would be very cool to see a predominantly black cast do be in a fantasy but we i don't think we have a movie out there correct me if i'm wrong i do not think we have a movie or a tv show that is that yeah i i can think of one and that is jing i think is it jingle jangle no drug from riverdale (laughs) (laughs) riverdale is exactly my thought (laughs) wait oh you're talking about is that the christmas movie are you talking Christmas. about the Christmas movie with um, Forrest Whitaker and um, yeah, yeah, okay. Good I, movie. I don't care what anyone says. That is a great movie. It was like, <laughs> apparently, it has eighty nine percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, great. oh I, that's huge. I yeah. love it. <laughs> My it people came nice. out for that movie, but um, <laughs> but 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 what I was like, like, so like, it will be good to see because like, we are getting more predominantly black cast like movies like like black panther we're getting it so it's starting starting not always to be a more normalized thing in hollywood so it'll be cool to see it but the thing is i have been burned so many times by You've live action things. i have set it i saw aragon in theaters yeah i avoided that shit because you know my thoughts on aragon the original story so I have I a sign. Saw, I have a sign. I saw Aragon in theaters. So I think you know, for me, yeah. I am a hard no on adaptations. The thing is, I always push like, let's make original ideas. But when it comes to something like Ursi, where it is something that we haven't really seen before, like a nonviolent, predominantly dark skinned cast movie, I think it'd be great. But I think I think it would do well. I think again, as I said jokingly, my people would come out for that movie. <laughs> I too that if it's approached now, I understand because also Alex, you have not been subject to. I don't know if you've listened to one of the episodes that Jordan has gone on one of his Ghost in the Shell rampages. They come out ever so often. You'll hear one at some point if you continue being friends with him. It's a given. It's a requirement in his friendship list. To have you have to have heard me on at least once complain about the movie Ghost in the Shell with Scarlett yeah, Johansson. Oh my I god, did. if they do an Earthsea movie, Gad needs to be played by Scarlett Johansson. No, you should have her play, you should have her play uh, the the woman who I You know she would name. you know she wouldn't be play the woman. You know she would be one of the characters who's supposed to be black. You know she yeah, would. Well, you know well, she would. Yeah. She would blow so Anyways. 
<laughs> Sorry, I I've been, like, of all the things I've been burned by is mostly Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> yeah, I I would like to see them attempt to do this. That's my thing is that I would like to see them attempt to do it because they've done so little. And like, if we can give Dune fifty bazillion adaptations, why can't we do that for Earthsea? Come on, three out of no, there's like four. Three? There's like four. Yeah, there's like a couple TV shows. The original shows movie, the and a TV movie. show, and the movie. I thought there was just one TV show. No, there's. Whatever, it doesn't matter. A special. There's a special. Ah, that's telling where me you get it. That's okay. There's like the Children of Dune, Dune the series, Dune the movie, something. Anyways, almost as many, not as many as Spider-Mans, but if we give, if we get 50,000 Spider-Mans, we should at least give Ursi twice, two adaptations worth. I agree. Yeah. You but, know, as Jordan was speaking, when he said Inkheart, I remembered The Secret of Moonacre, garbage. Mm. Dark is Rising, garbage. Chronicles of Narnia, garbage. So I think actually I'm changing my mind. <laughs> Chronicles of Narnia, better than it could have been. No, 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 no. I forgot that they made more than just the first, um, just, just The Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe. The, they effed up the Don Treader so hard. Yeah. That movie yeah, is so bad, and that's one of my favorite Narnia books. Is the Don Treader is such and a good book. And the only thing that people remember from Prince Caspian is fucking Ben Barnes. <laughs> Everybody's sexual awakening with Ben Barnes, and then realizing I don't that remember anything about Prince Caspian because the movie was bad. Yeah, it was. It was bad. But yeah. no, it's bad. Adaptations aren't great, but I think that it would do well now, and it has a chance. If I had to see more adaptations, I'd want to see this adapted. They're gonna do more adaptations because Hollywood can't resist it. If they're gonna do more adaptations, I want them to do this one as an adaptation. Okay, that's my. Well, reason. Hollywood is gonna do more adaptations. Hollywood's exactly. going to mess up again, seventy percent of them. But if yeah. we do get a um. Good Earthsea. I will watch if we get a good Earthsea movie. I will watch it. I'll be like, okay, I'll eat my hat. But like, if we get if we get Earthsea at all, you should watch it because we should all support it. Because it's also a female author, and it would probably be a primarily black cast. We're all if there's Earthsea, you're gonna fucking watch it because I'm gonna. Okay, okay, holy shit! You don't have to threaten me, jeez. (laughs) Anyways, anyways, Anyways. all I have to say is, um, yeah, yeah, um. All of the adaptations. I think most adaptations that I have watched have been bad. Mm-hmm. So, what I will say, um, we can move to the next part, and I think this is a Leah-led part. Oh yeah, I can, yeah, I can, I can read this. Yeah. So, um, and we're still talking about like the influence of Ursi. If people remember before we went on that long tangent about Sean Ashmore, um, <laughs> so there's just reminding everybody that. Ursula Le Guin was publishing very early, like long time ago for us standards of considering it's been 20 years since 2000, as we all remember. Um, There's a lot of authors who we know and love who've been er influenced by Ursula Le Guin. And I'm just going to read you a list of them. If ones you know, Uh, Neil Gaiman, Ian Banks, Solomon Rushdie, um, David Mitchell, who wrote Cloud Atlas, in case you don't recognize that name, because it's the most white name I've ever heard. Um, Caitlin uh, Gonan. Um, yeah. And I would just like, there's so many. And Alex, I, I'm going to call you out because you're the person who's read or see like the earliest in life and read a work. Like, what? And I, like, I could do the same for Terry Pratchett, but like, what for you impact has Ursula Gwen had on your life? 
I mean, it's pretty huge. As I said when I was explaining about yeah. Tahani, um, I think I probably read that book when I was around around the age of 20. And so I was sort of going into adulthood. I mean, I'm still 10 years later going into adulthood. Oh, we all are. Details. Yeah. Um, but, it, you know, that, that passage, just that passage had a huge, a tremendous effect on me. Um, and I mean, the fact that my, I, she appears a lot in my PhD thesis as well, I should say, but maybe that's as a result of her um, early influence on my life and the writing, the influence of her writing on my life. And also the fact that my grandmother and I have bonded over it. I mean, it clearly is related deeply to my understanding of my own gender and, and um, what it means to be a woman. And that has been a really positive impact. I've taken a lot of courage and confidence from the things that she wrote. So, yeah. yeah. That's what awesome. about you? I, I, I think I like the fact, and I will say the one thing that has influenced me, even though I have only read it recently, is the fact that I know her as being a counterpoint to Tolkien is it was nice to know even if I hadn't read her growing up that I knew that well there aren't that many super famous female authors of fantasy and sci-fi she was there and she had an impact on people like that is what I knew and it was nice because yeah most of the people who I read are male authors not as much these days but like it feels like the big names in fantasy the big the big ones are mostly male, unfortunately, and those are the names you can pull out of your hat. And it's that's sad as a young person growing up reading fantasy, even though like most of the f- books I read were female leads, like that my dad like primarily read books with female leads and but still a lot of them were by men anyways. And so it's nice it was nice to know that she provided that counterpoint of that. At least for in my household. Yeah. 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 Jordan, what about you? Um, so what was the specific question? Sorry, I got got lost. What impact would you say Le Guin has had on your life? On my life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel so bad. Um <laughs> No, to, to to be honest, as all jokes aside, because I can very easily make a bunch of jokes, is I, I do <laughs> think that at the very basis of it kind of has helped me like, you know, give high fantasy another chance. <laughs> um, it's, it's because, like I said, the story itself was very relatable, very understanding. I mean, also coming of age, but, but it's one of those things where like, I read the book expecting to not like it because I don't really, like I said, I don't really not the greatest fan of high fantasy. It started off a little slow for me, but I did truly enjoy it. So, so I guess part of it is kind of like, Hey, maybe, you know, it's not all just, um, high elves and arrows and wars and stuff. Maybe there's more too, but, and then, I mean, like the impact is, I, I guess it's not as strong as yours guys. Cause this is like my one off, experience with this author and probably if it does happen later won't be for a little while so <laughs> i give this book to a kid if if i know someone who oh, yeah, has I'll a throw kid, this at a kid i would throw this at a kid we'll throw this book at children yeah hey you kid what <laughs> <laughs> that was a very visual joke but that was still funny 
Yeah. I love how both of us went that. We are literally throwing books at Yeah, yeah, no, that no. It's not like I, I was with a, oh yeah, I'll throw no, I will physically I will I will physically I will accost hit them a child. In the face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry, Alex. I think I yeah I know we had this like nice reference of the impact and like all this and then us two idiots just at the end like oh yeah let's hit a kid with a book yeah <laughs> anyways um so yeah I guess it's time to wrap up or, or, has everybody said everything that you need to say about the book? I want to say a couple of things oh, yeah, about yeah, Le Guin stuff go ahead. yeah yeah. <laughs> okay, um, I just want to mention two other books that I think are really important. Um, yeah. One is The Left Hand of Darkness, which Ooh, is uh, her most famous science fiction book. So, well, again, I feel like all of her books blur the boundaries, um, but and as does The Left Hand of Darkness. So it's um, a science fiction novel in the sense that it's sort of set in the future, in space, there is a man who is a from Terra or Earth, who goes to another planet um, called Gethin. And um, on this uh, planet, the individuals that populate it are ambisexuals, so they have no fixed sex, and they only become gendered at a specific time of um, the month when they can procreate. So obviously this book received huge backlash for from loads of different groups it sparked a huge feminist debate i'm sure it sparked transgender debates but again this really ties in with what we were saying earlier about race in fantasy i mean um it's just you know you can just make it up it's just all made up in fantasy and so the fact that we place our own understanding of the world onto um books that are just inherently imaginative is really fascinating um, and then the other book I wanted to mention was The Word for World is Forest. And this is one of her lesser known books, but it's fantastic. Um, and yeah, that's all I'll say. <laughs> now I'm done. Add to my list. I need to, I need to start my list again. Yeah, so I will add it. Leah's Book Club episode. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which is, that's, the t- that's now the title of the episode is Leah's Big Ab- Club. <laughs> Big Club? Book Club. Did you say- Okay, okay. I was like, Big there's club. two O's in book clubs. Jeez. Anyways, <laughs> anyways. Okay, so it's now time to wrap up. And what we usually do at the end of these episodes is we talk about like one thing or something in nerd culture that we've been enjoying. It can be diverse, it can not be diverse, but just something we've been enjoying in our reading recently. So you guys can start, and I'll bookend it. Okay. Um, I'll I'll start. I have been really off television recently um i haven't been watching a lot of tv other than like the one episode of wheel of time per week and i did read reread a book that i really love called uh, the curse of chalion recommend it for people very actually like high fantasy so i'm surprised i had the mental energy to do it probably because i've read it once before but my main thing this week is or technically it's a couple weeks ago is the video game unpacking Ooh. Mm. Please this tell game? us about this video game because it's very, very interesting concept to me. 
ah it's so me it's so like absolutely my game it is a game where you are going through this girl woman like as she goes from different places well she starts when she's a child and then different places in her life and you're unpacking as she moves into new locations so you literally have boxes and you click on the box and you click on the box again and it gives you an item and you have to put them away in different things it's so relaxing because literally it's just you putting stuff on shelves like the first one's her childhood room and it's like some of the stuff there's only a couple items that have required places like her diary has to go in a drawer everything else you can put however you want to put it and that's happening throughout this but then like you realize as you're going through this woman's life you it's like becoming a commentary on like what's happening and you're seeing like snapshots of what's happening and like some of the downs like there's periods where it's like it's clearly like building and building and then you can see where she's going through downs in her life like clearly she's suffering through stuff and stuff's happening and things are going wrong and then she starts up again and then and then rebuilds her life from ground zero and it's 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 so good because it's so the music's like cute and it's it's a nice art style it's just so easy to play it's incredibly easy to play i played it mainly during lab meetings which was funny but it was just like oh so relaxing and then like oddly deep at moments where i was like oh i feel this i feel this and it ends on a really happy note but it's just like mm, yeah worth it because i know people are like oh it's quite it's it's a little more than usual indie games are i think it's absolutely worth it just for like the comfort it gave me and the little bits of like other stuff in there mm-hmm. support an indie developer do it okay. yeah cool it sounds great um yeah sounds definitely absolutely not jordan's game no i mean <laughs> we've we've talked about what type of video games i like and i'm sitting there and putting stuff away it's just a game that would eventually feel like a chore to me um, oh, i love it and i played through the entirety of visceral cleanup detail which is a literal chore cleaning. a little chore anyways alex what do you got so uh yesterday i finished the second season of lock and key which is relevant given that we've been speaking about yeah, sean, sean ashmore's brother isn't it <laughs> yeah the uncle or whatever oh, dustin or something i think is his name or something like that i don't know um but yeah i i kind of enjoyed it i think i probably enjoyed this first season more i've not read the um source material Um, speaking of adaptations (laughs) i mean i think there's some really great characters in lock and key but otherwise it's pretty meh you know great background (laughs) yeah Yeah, i was gonna say it's it's pretty subpar like it's 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 a good thing to just put on if you just want something like that's just like candy and it's good in this in this time and age that's what i need yeah absolutely well actually i did want to mention it of course because you know talking about diversity they do have um a very diverse cast they've got um uh an autistic actor playing um an autistic character uh, they have a young man who um, has two prosthetic yeah, legs. Yeah, double and, MPT. Yeah, I forgot about yeah. that one. 
and also there are a number of um, strong female characters and a number of black characters. There are an, multiple um, partnerships where with one um, white person and one black person, which sounds like a silly thing to say, but I was thinking about Lieutenant Uhura earlier in our conversation and remembering the famous kiss with Captain Cook that was so scandalous. Mm-hmm. So it's just nice to watch something that's just normal. You know, yeah. it's like a normal. Well, and even thinking about that Cheerios commercial that happened only like, I want to say like five years ago where people freaked out because it was a biracial couple. How are we... <laughs> Hold on, how are we still flipping out about biracial couples? Isn't this something yeah, that, like, fun. I thought we were, like, well on our way of normalizing, like, 30 years ago, 40 years ago? What is, why is biracial still think. a thing? As a, yeah. as a black man, I call bullshit. Why, are we, yeah. why is this still an issue? Anyways. Quite, quite, quite. Um, the other thing that I would definitely recommend um, is a book. It is a children's book, but it is very well written. And I think, Leah, I've mentioned this to you multiple times recently, so I apologize. But it's a book called The Ear, the Eye and the Arm by a woman called Nancy Farmer. And it was written and published in 1989. And it's a science fiction novel for children, but it's very much young adult in the sense that an adult could read it and quite enjoy it. It's set in Zimbabwe in 2194 and it's about three children who go on an adventure and get kidnapped and oh, the three detectives, the ear, the eye and the arm have to find them and it's really, really good fun. Um, and then the last thing I was going to say was Titans season three came on Netflix on Wednesday and it is, I started watching it today and it's so uh-huh. good. And again, talking about diversity, Starfire, this is a DC adaptation, Starfire. Yeah. So I just didn't recognize the title for some, oh, the Titans. Yeah. Yeah. Titans, Titans. Um, But yeah, Starfire was cast um, uh, as a black, with a black actress in the role. And that caused quite a lot of controversy. Oh yeah, I remember that. Um, and it's just so funny because if you look at the the um, actress in her costume next to the um, original uh, drawings where the character is yellow, you know, yeah, like, I think <laughs> quite a good match. Character is yeah. either yellow or orange in the comics, so like it's yeah. like <laughs> it's like why does like I, the, it's like how many orange people do you know? Tell me. <laughs> I know is, one, and he cannot play her. Yeah. It then contrasts really well to the fact that no one freaked out when, uh, what's his name? Oh my God, from Jessica Jones wasn't purple. Like, oh, yeah, the purple man. Blue. Yes. Um, yeah. David Tennant. Purple. How do you forget yeah, about David, David Tennant. Tennant? Yeah. Uh, anyways, we need to finish this. This episode is literally two hours, by the way. Um, so I'm going to close out and say the thing I've been doing. Um, sorry, guys, anime. So I've been watching, well, I just finished the new season of um, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, which screw Netflix and like just released the whole thing rather than like 12 episodes at a time. But, you know, we're just going to get 12 episodes and we'll have to wait to see what happens next, whatever. But, um... It's great. It's the um, season of JoJo's that is um, female-driven in a predominantly female cast. And um, the thing, and I talked to Leah about this a little bit, is like the opening song intro is done in the same style as part three is. And it shows the characters doing lots of action poses and action things in it, which is not 
usually something that you see a lot of times in anime with the female characters. You don't get many times a female character literally punch someone in the face or and I apologize, almost beat someone Excellent. to death with a baseball. Um so, Love it. so 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 but 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 you get the same sort of badass, the same sort of action that you get rather than like, I know a lot of times when you have female superheroes or when you have female anime characters, their powers are usually either gymnastics based or it's like something from afar. Like you see like, like shooting magic blasts or like power blasts out of the hands rather than literally punching someone. And it's like, I know we have the whole thing of violence in TV, but we see a female bruiser type character, which is very rare in anime first and media in general. So it, it, yeah. it, and it's great. And like, it has the same reverence and respect as every other Jojo series. And it's just getting lots and lots of attention because it's just cool and weird and kind of dumb, but it's great. So yeah, check out Jojo's bizarre adventure. Um, part six stone ocean. But yeah, I always like the names. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's all we got. We thank you for listening to us speak for tw- uh, almost at twelve hours because that'd be a freaking feat. Two <laughs> hours, and um, yeah, thank thanks for listening. It's been fun doing the show, and it's been really great to have you on, Alex. I really hope. Yes, you thank you. I really yeah. enjoyed. It. I was worried I wouldn't have anything to say, and here we are. <laughs> <laughs> God. Well, yeah. Glad you did. Um, yeah, Leah, you got anything to close out on before I just say? The usual. Uh, no, this will come out sometime around the holidays. So Maybe. happy holidays, or ha- or happy, happy New Year. Hope you had a Who good. Knows? Have you had good holidays? Hope, so, hope you good go. holidays have you. Thank you guys yeah. for listening, and we will talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Bye.